Well, good evening. Tonight we're in Genesis chapter 3. And the way I'm going to approach Genesis chapter 3 tonight is going to be a little bit different than, say, the way we normally teach. And it's based on the fact that I think that most of us who are here tonight and probably most of you who are watching in your homes tonight know the story of Genesis chapter 3, the fall, if you will, of mankind. And so I want us to just not necessarily go verse by verse, but I just want to share with you the things that God laid on my heart as I've read and studied this passage. And maybe if nothing else, it'll get you to go back and reread it and, and examine it again. I, I've often said that if a Christian can understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis and you get a grasp of those first 11 chapters, then the rest of the Bible sort of falls into place. And I'll even go a step further. If you and I truly understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, then everything else in the Bible is based on what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Everything. All the way through Revelation. So it's really important that we obviously get a grasp of Genesis chapter 3. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw God the Creator, as we've sung about and as we've looked at the last couple of weeks. And then last week in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God is a very personal God and how he became very personally interested in every detail of his creation, including taking all that time to address how he created mankind and brought us about. But tonight, we're going to see the God of grace, that even in the midst of the fall, here comes the God of grace. And we're going to talk about the God of grace towards the end of the message. When we come to Genesis chapter 3, I want us first of all to note a couple of things. We always talk about the importance of worship here at the Oasis. How our view of God, our concept of God, putting God in his rightful place, having a high opinion of God, really then drives everything else that we say and do in our lives. It's really the fulcrum, if you will, of our lives. And the reason I bring that up at the very beginning is because I, I want you to see something in here that I, I think we need to make sure that we see. In Genesis chapter 3, God is addressed as Lord God. We talked about that last week. Jehovah Elohim, all the way through Genesis chapter 3, except in one section. He's addressed as Lord God. Lord God except in the section where the serpent, who's the devil, is talking to Eve. And then you'll notice in those few verses that when the serpent talks about God, it's not Lord God. If you'll notice in your Bibles, it's just God. The serpent never refers to God as Lord God, but just God. 
And then you'll notice that when Eve talked to the serpent, she does not refer to God as Lord God. She refers to God as simply God, Elohim. I think there's something to be said there. That even in the way they are addressing God, there is a diminishing of the person of God already taking place there. Their view of God isn't he's the Lord God. He's God, you see. And there's something else that you'll see throughout this chapter. And it's the importance of listening and heeding the voice of God above all other voices. Because one of the things that you see here is when the serpent, who is the devil, comes to talk to Eve, the Bible reminds us that Eve, in fact, later on, when God confronts Eve, he says, you listen to the serpent over me. You listen to the voice of the serpent instead of me. And then when he confronts Adam, same deal. He says to Adam later on in the chapter, you listen to the voice of your wife instead of me. Again, not that husbands and wives aren't to listen to each other. It's that God's voice should always be the priority, the one that we listen to more than any other voice. And that's what got them into trouble because, remember, God gave them clear instruction. We saw this earlier in Genesis chapter 2. He places them in this beautiful garden. He says they can have every tree and they can eat from every tree freely except that one that's in the middle of the garden. They can't eat from that tree because if they do and they make that choice, they will surely die. Eve listened to the creature the serpent, rather than the creator. In fact, it's very interesting at the very beginning of this chapter that Satan uses this serpent, this creature, to direct his address to, to Eve. And let me now go back even a step further. What we obviously find when we come to Genesis chapter 3, that we've got to pause for a moment, is to realize that if the serpent is this animal creature that God made, and yet the devil is using this serpent, then that means that between somewhere between the creation of the universe and all that was in the universe, every creature in the universe, including the angels, that somewhere between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, Satan fell. Lucifer fell. We don't know a lot of details about that, but obviously that's the case. Because Satan is using this serpent creature to speak to Eve. Now, one of the amazing things, too, that, you know, it's like it didn't freak Eve out that this serpent was talking to her. I don't know whether that meant that in the pre-fall that, you know, animals, it, it didn't it wasn't something way out there for Eve, like, well, what are you, you're not supposed to be talking to me. You know, I don't know. Again, a lot of things we don't know, so we concentrate on the things that we do know. But the serpent comes, and the Bible says there in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was a very crafty creature. 
obviously Satan using this creature to approach Eve. And you'll notice what begins to happen here as the temptation from Satan begins. And the reason why it's important that you and I as Christians really grasp what's going on here is because Satan's strategy to get to us even thousands of years later is no different than it was with Eve. His approach is the same. He wants to start getting into her thinking. He wants to start getting into her thinking. And so he comes to her and he basically says, is it really true? that God said you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden. Well, obviously, that wasn't it, but he's beginning to try to cast doubt into God's word, and he's beginning to try to attack the character and the integrity of God in Eve's mind. It's all back here, right? It starts in our thinking, and that's where he's going with Eve. He's starting to engage her in this conversation, right? And because she's willing to engage, you'll notice some very key details as she now starts to converse with the serpent. Now, to be fair to Eve, everything that she understood about what was going on there in that garden probably came through her husband. So did her husband tell her everything? Did her husband reveal all of it, or did he leave out certain details? Don't know. And maybe God did directly reveal all this to Eve, too. But what's interesting is she begins to engage with this serpent. She says, well, no, God, God said that we could eat from all the trees. But you, you'll notice that she doesn't use the word every or freely as God did. So she begins to already omit things from what God said. She also omits the word surely. She says they'll die, but God said you'll surely die. So three things that God said, she's already omitted. And then you'll notice she, she adds something to what God said. Because God never said you can't touch it. But when Eve starts this conversation with the serpent, she says, oh, he said we couldn't eat from it or we couldn't touch it. And then you really begin to see Satan's strategy because then he comes right out basically and calls God a liar. And he says, surely you won't die. You're not going to die. Casting doubt into God's word. Trying to get Eve to begin to doubt the goodness of God, because then he goes on to say, because God knows that if you would take this and Adam would take this, you'd all of a sudden have this enlightenment and this knowledge, and you'd become like him. And he's holding out on you, you see. So again, that's the way Satan works. Promises enlightenment, and we end up enslaved, <laughs> Promises that, or, you know, states that God's holding out on us and doesn't have our best interest at heart. God's not really good, you see. And, and, and he begins to try to rewire her brain. And now he's got her to the point where the Bible says 
after that conversation, she looks at that fruit and she says, boy, that looks good. And it started with the eyes. And she takes the fruit and she eats it. And then amazingly, the Bible says, oh, and she gave it to her husband who was right there all the time. And he eats it too. So then you see two other things happening here. God created man to be the leader. Adam's not doing a very good job of leading, is he, right now? Very passive, just sitting back, watching it all happen. Knows what God has said. God gave him clear instructions, and he's just sitting there watching the whole thing unfold, and then when he, she offers it to him, he takes it, as we say, hook, line, and sinker. And then there's Eve. She was created to be Adam's helper. Not really helping very much, is she, at this point? And then the Bible says something amazing and reveals it to us. Once they ate it, all of a sudden, they became self-aware, and that self-awareness through a knowledge that did not come from God made them very self-conscious made them very vulnerable, made them feel exposed. Because now all of a sudden, all this time that they were in fellowship with God and in fellowship with others, and they were naked, it didn't seem to matter. And now all of a sudden, when they got this knowledge apart from God, which is why God gave them that choice, look, he said to them, all the knowledge you will ever need will come through me. And if you're not satisfied with that and you try to make an end run and, and absorb and, and try to gain knowledge apart from me, first of all, as we said last week, you won't be able to handle it. It will be more than you can handle. And second of all, it won't be good for you. But they didn't listen and they disobeyed. And all of a sudden now, they're bothered by their nakedness. And they don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, this shame and guilt that never existed before that has flooded into that soul of theirs. They were in perfect fellowship with God, walking with him in the garden, close. And now look what happens. Sin begins to drive a wedge and create a distance between them and God. And we're going to see in a moment, even between the two of them, which is what it does because they started to sow fig leaves on themselves. And, and then we transition to the next part of the passage, where God is walking through the garden and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And he says, where are you? And he confronts Adam. And Adam said, well, I knew it was you, but I was afraid. And I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? You see. Hmm. We'll come back to that part of the story in just a moment. But here's where you begin to see also that separation between God and men and between man and woman here in this case. Because what does Adam do next? 
Instead of confession of what he had done wrong, it's accusation. He says, well, God, the woman that you gave me. <laughs> notice, notice he really doesn't blame Eve. He actually blames God. He says, God, you did this because you created her, and it's her that tripped me up. So it's your fault, God. You did this. Well, Eve's not much better. Because then when God later on confronts Eve, she says, well, the serpent tricked me. You know, the, the devil made me do it. It's not, it's not my responsibility. So notice, again, not only is there this self-awareness gained apart from God, which leads to a self-consciousness, which leads to a bad self-identity, which is what we began to talk about last week, why God doesn't want us to gain knowledge apart from him because it attacks our self-identity. But there's also this lack of willingness to accept responsibility and to shift the blame and to point the finger to somebody else. All because neither one of them listened to the voice of God. And dare I say, going back to the very beginning, maybe their concept, their view, their opinion of God was in some way less than what it should be. Instead of them looking at him as Lord God, he was God. Which again goes back to the importance of worship. Worship is always putting God in his rightful place. And that has to come, though, from our heart, not even from our head. It's one thing to know it in our head. It's another thing to truly surrender to it in our heart. Say, yes, God, you're, you're the Lord. You decide. You determine. You call. I'm following you. You know more than me. When we act independently of God, which is exactly what Lucifer did when he fell, I want to be like you. I don't want to depend on you, God. I don't want to rely upon you. I want to live independently of you. That's the motivation for Lucifer's fall. And Lucifer has been trying to get mankind to live independently of God from the time he fell. Because he knows what the consequences are, you see. Now, interestingly, God then begins to confront the serpent the woman and Adam about the consequences that they're going to face. Consequences that are, you know, as we like to say maybe many times, unintended consequences. Man, I didn't realize when I made that decision what might happen. <laughs> and notice something very interesting here. First of all, God curses the natural creature, the serpent, before he does the supernatural creature, Satan. He curses the snake. Even though the snake was an animal, the snake had no, you know, the snake was just a tool, right, of Satan. So why does God curse the snake? Well, first of all, let's even back up a little bit further. We obviously know from the curse that before he was cursed, the snake, that the snake was probably more like a beautiful lizard than the snake that we know today because... Part of the curse is that the snake would now, instead of walking on all fours, would now crawl on its belly and literally have to lick the dust. 
Why does God curse the serpent even before he curses the devil who's using the serpent in the next verse? Because it is highly symbolic. You see, God wanted to show Satan, you wanted to be like me, right? You, you wanted to be like the most high. And now there's going to be an animal on earth that symbolizes you for the rest of eternity, the snake. I'm going to bring you down, and, and every time someone sees a snake, it could remind them of the fall of Satan, that you were at the highest of heights. You were one of the anointed cherubim that, that covered. You, you had direct access to me, maybe like no other angel other than maybe Michael the archangel. And now you symbolically are like that snake that crawls on its belly, that literally lives at ground level and below ground level. That's who you are. In fact, very interestingly, we know that God's never going to reverse that curse even during the millennial reign of Christ on earth because we read in places like Isaiah where a baby will be able to play over the hole of a snake and not be afraid because the snake's poison and, and the ability to hurt the, the child will be taken away, but the snake's still going to crawl during the millennial kingdom. It won't be given legs again because it's an eternal symbol of the fall of Satan. Then God curses Satan, in a sense, and says, between you and the woman, there's going to be this enmity and hostility throughout eternity. And between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring is going to come one day and crush your head. Your offspring is going to bruise its heel. And then God turns to the woman and relays the consequences of her involvement and then goes to Adam and relays the consequences of his involvement. And we are reminded then of what's going on here. Now, if the story were to stop right there, yeah, you know, but it doesn't. I want us to see a thread of God and his grace that runs throughout this great chapter. I want us to see God and the four aspects of his grace and how he deals with the fall of man in this chapter. And the first one I want us to see tonight is that grace pursues. Grace pursues. Notice after the fall, after they sow the fig leaves on, who is it that's pursuing who? It's not Adam and Eve who's pursuing God. They're hiding. They're covering, which, by the way, the word to cover and the word to hide is very much connected to the word for shame. Shame is expressed through covering and hiding. And it's one of the results of sin. It's one of the results of the fall. They lost face. 
in front of all creation. They were supposed to be the ones that ruled over all creation. In fact, I believe that even in Satan's strategy of why did he choose a creature to even approach even the first place, he had this in mind. I'm, I'm upsetting the order of things is the way God determined them to be. Because God told Adam and Eve, you're to rule over all the animals. And now it's through this animal, this serpent, that the fall comes about. Back, anyway, to grace. Grace pursued. God is the one walking through the orchard or the garden looking for them. They're not looking for him. They're hiding. That's who God is. He's a God of grace, and he's a God who always initiates. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes after us. We love him because he first loved us, John said. He first loved us, and he still pursues us. Even as his children, he doesn't wait for us to come to him. He is continually pursuing us because that's what the God of grace will do. And obviously, he does the same with unbelievers. He runs after them. He pursues them. He initiates with them. That's why I, I try to encourage Christians all the time, don't think that God's not at work in your unsaved family member or friend or neighbor or whatever, God's reaching them at a level that you and I can't even understand or, or even see. God can reach them through dreams at night while they're on their bed. He can speak into their spirit in, in a way that you and I can't. There's all kinds of ways that God can get into their psyche that we'll never see externally. By the way, side note here, as things pop into my brain, you'll note here, again, going back to Satan's approach was to start getting into her head. That's what Satan does to us. He tries to get into our head. And, and when we start to go our own way rather than God's way, it starts to rewire our brain. Our brain literally physiologically changes and Satan knows that. That's why he likes to get into our heads. That's why the Bible spends so much time talking to us about thinking and meditating and studying and reading and absorbing and immersing ourselves in, in the Word of God and into the truth of God so that Satan can't get in our head and start to play games. So grace pursues. God will always pursue us. Grace also pardons. Genesis 3.15, to me, is one of the key verses in the whole Bible. Maybe Genesis 3.15 and John 3.16. Genesis 3.15 is called in theology the proto-evangelium, or the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It is a prophecy of hope in the midst of the fall. God is basically saying, this did not take me by surprise. This was not my original design, but I'm not surprised by what's going on here, and I have a solution. There is coming a Redeemer one day who's going to crush the head of Satan. Yes, 
The cost to deal with sin and redeem sinners is going to come at a cost because his heel is going to be bruised. But ultimately, even though the victory over sin is going to come at a cost, there is going to be victory over Satan, over death, over sin, over hell, over, over it all. And that first note of that is Genesis 3.15. And God basically saying, look, there's now going to be a spiritual battle that exists between you, Satan, and your offspring and her offspring. And it's going to go back and forth. But ultimately, I win, Satan. I win. And those who believe in me and trust in me, they win. And I'm a God who pardons their sin. I'm a God who's going to send the Redeemer one day. I'm a God who's going to send my very own son to die for them so that they never have to be eternally separated from me if they don't want to be. Grace not only pursues, grace pardons. Then if you go over to, towards the end of the chapter, Grace provides. Grace provides. Because, first of all, man's sin needs a covering, okay? But man's attempt to cover sin is inadequate. The only adequate covering of sin comes from God, and yet, as we're going to see here tonight, the remedy that God has that he provides for the covering of sin comes at the cost of an innocent life because the fig leaves didn't cut it, right? So God comes along later and provides skins for them, animal skins meaning that the animal was innocently an innocent but had to be sacrificed in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. Even then, back in Genesis 3, what is God showing? That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In a sense, God in Genesis 3.15 and over here at the end of Genesis he is setting up the whole sacrificial system of the entire Old Testament. And God provides. Just as he will later on in Genesis when Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain. And Isaac looks at his father and says, uh, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. God always provides. And if God has provided to meet our greatest need, which is the need of a Savior to cover our sin, then we can trust God to meet every other lesser need in our life. Grace pursues. Grace pardons. Grace provides. One final tonight. Grace protects. Why did God tell them in the first place not to eat from the tree, the one tree in the middle of the garden, because he knew that would not be good for them. His word was simply a protection. He, he, he had their best interest at heart. And then later on, after sin comes and they fall, what does God do to protect them? 
The Bible says he expelled them from the garden and sent two angels to literally guard the entrance back into that place so that Adam and Eve could never have access to the tree of life after they fell. Why? Because if they would have went back and eaten from that tree, they would have lived eternally in a sinful condition with no possibility of redemption. By expelling them from the garden, God was actually protecting them from that. It wasn't a punishment. It was protection. Because then the process of dying could start. And one day they could lay down this mortal and take on immortality and live forever by faith with God. Otherwise, they eat from the tree of life and forever exist in such a terrible state. Grace protects. So in this pivotal chapter in the story of redemption in the Bible, in this pivotal chapter in the book of Genesis and even in the entire Bible, where you see the fall of man, you also see at the very same time this line running right down through it of the grace of God, seeing who God is. And that even in the midst of this first man and woman making a mess of things, God is there to, in a sense, clean it up and make a way and provide a solution for mankind to go forward. You and I can trust God for his solutions. And maybe here tonight, You're dealing with something in your life, and God just wants to encourage you to trust him because he's the God of grace. And because he's the God of grace, he will always pursue, he will always pardon, he will always provide, and he will always protect. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that you have met with your people. We thank you, God, for embracing us, for drawing us close tonight to you. Thank you, God, for reminding us that even when we make a mess of things, you can redeem it. You can restore it. You can renew it. You can turn things around. You always provide a solution to our problems because that's who you are. You're a God of grace. A God who pours out into our lives each and every day abundant, unmerited favor and blessing. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that our hearts are full of our God of grace. And that as people who are recipients of grace, may we share that grace and be givers of grace and dispense that grace to others as well. Thank you for the time we've had in your house tonight. Thank you for those who are watching in their homes tonight. Bless us all, Lord, as we end another day.
May we end it with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.